Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, As indeed, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat, do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if I eat what causes, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Amen. Good morning, everyone. There you go. Uh, we are continuing our series on the narratives our culture teaches us, and we're looking at the third one uh, today. And so, in order to begin to get our minds around this, I've got a couple of questions, and the postmodern, no, the pre-modern world used to ask this question, uh, who's your family? And you may not be aware, but at one time your ancestors didn't have last names, they just had first names, and like my name is Bruce O'Neill, and that means that at some point I was the son of Neil because that's what O in Irish leads to, or Mac in if you're Scottish. And so Johnson is the son of John, so on and so on. Because at one time, our culture identified you by the clan you came from. It told them everything about you when you said, my name is Son of Neil. Well, we're not in a pre-modern culture, are we? In a modern culture... Uh, we would ask this question, where are you from? Because your identity was tied up in the community by which produced you. And so people would meet you and they would say, where are you from? What they mean by that is, uh, tell me about your people, because if you'll tell me about your people, that'll tell me everything about you. It's shorthand. Well, we live in a transient society, and we live in one of the most transient cities in the world, and so we don't ask that question anymore, do we? 
Because truly, almost everyone is from somewhere other than here. That's not all true. There are plenty of born and bred New Yorkers. uh, But you're such a, a minority that nobody even asks that question anymore. We New Yorkers, though, we've got a new question that we ask. We ask, what do you do? Because what you do tells us a lot about who you are. In fact, it's the cultural narrative I want us to look at this morning, this idea of what I do determines who I am. There's even a religious version of that. If you hang around uh, churches very long, they don't ask the the question so much, uh, uh, what do you do? But the same thought of what I do determines who I am, it's like this, what I do determines whether I get close to God or not. And what I do can make me further from God. And so there's even a religious version of what I do determines who I am. That's why it's so important. So a little context to this passage that was just read to us is that uh, the Corinthian Christians uh, wrote a letter that we don't have uh, sent to uh, Paul and who uh, they asked for some advice and some opinion uh, about some controversies that were going on in the life of the church and we're turning to a new controversy in the life of the church in chapter 8. Now granted Paul didn't put at the top of his manuscript chapter 8. That's something monks did much later Uh, but he's got a new thought here and the question that they're asking is simply this Can Christians who follow the God of the Bible eat meat that has been sacrificed uh, to a false god? Can Christians attend worship services in uh, pagan uh, temples where a pagan god is being worshipped? And so your natural question is in the 21st century, Bruce, come on, why can't, this is so archaic, why are we talking about something that was so long ago to some people who had animal sacrifices. We don't see those quite so often here in the United States. What difference does it matter? Because the temples back then also served as the local grocery stores. Everybody had to buy meat in there if you were going to eat meat unless you grew it yourself we're talking about cities urban settings not agricultural settings you couldn't really grow your own food in a jam-packed city as small as they were in the ancient world and so you went to the local temple and bought your meat uh, post-sacrifice and so it mattered so to say that christians couldn't eat that meat to say that new believers who came in uh, to christianity in the church there in corinth I couldn't attend those worship services, you would be asking them to cut themselves off, not only from meat and become vegetarians, but you would also be asking them to cut themselves off from every holiday and special event in the life of that community. Because back then, temples also served where weddings happen, where funerals happen, where graduation services, no holiday had any existence apart from temple worship. 
All the restaurants you would visit in town all got their meat from the local temple after it had been sacrificed. The lives of these Christians were so intertwined with pagan uh, worship to say that you couldn't do that would be cutting them off from life. They might as well move out of town. Not only is that true, but most everybody in these cities were part of a trade. That is, you wonder what people did in the ancient world in urban settings. They had trades. They made things. And in order to make things, not really to make things, in order to sell the things you made, you had to be belong to a union, a trade union. You think that's a, a modern invention. It's quite old. In fact, in order to exist in an urban setting, you had to have your union card. And what that means is you would pay your union dues uh, to the temple because they were the collector of all of the union dues because they got their portion in order to run the temple. But not only is that true, but each union had its own pagan god. And so if you weren't lighting some kind of sacrifice uh, to that pagan god, you couldn't get your union card. And if you had become a Christian and you said, you know what, God's calling me not to go to the temple anymore or to eat meat that had been sacrificed, then you had to also turn in your union card, which meant you had no ability to make a living. Your family could starve. So it wasn't simply a question of, I became a Christian now, and so I like vegetables, and you know, I can sell on the black market. No. You were out, 100%. It's not a little bit in, a little bit out. You were out. That's why this question is so stinking important to them. It's not merely an archaic question because I think the Bible has a lot to say about modern versions of the same thing. Whereas we become Christians, to give up some of the things that we did before we became Christians carry a cost. So let's first look at their argument here. They have a very clear argument of why they should be allowed to go to the temple, why they should be allowed to go to worship, why they should be allowed to participate. Their argument is there's nothing wrong with it because going to pagan temples and, and eating that meat, first, we know better. We know there's only one true God. They're not worshiping real gods in there, so we can go. The second argument is these idols are just a wood and stone. Therefore, they're worthless, those gods. And then the third argument is food does not make us right with God. Remember how I started? What we do doesn't make us right with God. Therefore, we're free to eat. We're free to go. And we're free to enjoy. So they're asking Paul, what do you think about that argument? And Paul, they're not going to like his answer. What they really want Paul to do, and sometimes we want that too, is they want somebody with an authority to speak to the fundamentalist in our midst. The people who would restrict our freedoms, those fundies. Paul, can you speak to the fundies in our church? And Paul says, you got it wrong. Your argument is filled with holes because... If you knew how much pride is a problem in your heart, you wouldn't think this way. 
If you knew how much bad theology is the worst taskmaster, master, then you wouldn't think like this. And if you knew how fallen the human heart can get, then you wouldn't think this way. And so let's look at those big three ideas, the problem of pain, the problem of pride, um, the taskmaster of bad theology, and then ultimately the fallenness of the human heart. So the first thing Paul says is, I don't really like your attitude. Let me show you how he says it. He says it better than that. He says in verse 1, now, I'm gonna, now is Paul's way of saying, I'm going to turn the page here. I've been talking about this, and now I'm going to talk about this. So Paul says, now, about food sacrificed to idols. I didn't bring this subject up. You wrote it to me. And so I'm going to answer what you asked me about idolatry. And so he then quotes what they said in their letter. It's one of the reasons we know there's a letter. He quotes it's their letter back to them when he says, We know that all possess knowledge. And then Paul's answer to that is, yeah, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Paul is saying that they are proud about what they know. That somehow they have this special knowledge that not everybody in the church has, especially these fundies who are restricting them. If they knew what we knew, they would let us go, and they wouldn't put up a fuss when we do go. They were looking down upon their brothers and sisters in the church because they didn't also have that freedom and understanding. And so it's almost an intellectual snobbery uh, that they have in the church, that they have those that have knowledge and have great pride in it and those that don't. It's kind of like when you find for the very first time the essence of the gospel and you start to beat everybody else over the head because they don't believe it. You see, there's even a gospel pride too. No one escapes pride. Yet Paul warns them, you don't know the most basic thing. Verse 2, those who think that they know something do not yet know what they ought to know. What Paul is saying is, is that if we're honest, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. Now, that's not a circular argument to say that we don't know anything. I'm just saying what we do know should make us humble, not proud. The more we know. My wife, when we went to seminary, I went to seminary late in life. I, late in life. I went to, in my 30s. And so uh, we, we would be in seminary with all of these students who were coming from church backgrounds. I didn't come from a church background. Uh, I didn't even know. We're studying the book of Amos. I didn't even know that book was in Amos when I went, was in the Bible when I went to seminary. I had to read it for the first time while I was there. Um, so you might be thinking, well, that explains a lot about this pastor. He doesn't really know a whole lot. But one of the things my wife noticed about seminary students is that more knowledge that they got about the Bible did not make them humble. It made them proud. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. 
And her theory, it's a very biblical one, so it's not hers, is that the more you know, the more humble you should be. Because one of the things that you realize is that whatever you know, to whatever degree you know, it's by the grace of God that you know. Because he's the revealer of all knowledge. I don't care whether it's general revelation out in the world and you just happen to go by the Grand Canyon and you see the strata in the rock and you say, huh, boy, that's interesting. And then you start reading about it. The, rock, the strata of that rock was put there by the Lord, the creator of all things. You know, sometimes we forget that there's oxygen in the air and we're, so we're sitting here and we're breathing. We're not even thinking about it. Now you are because I mentioned it. That was put there by the Lord. Sometimes we forget that, and so it becomes a pride that we know something, and then we lord it over those that don't. They wanted Paul to affirm that they were right about knowledge, but Paul tells them, you're wrong. The core problem here is pride, a failure to understand how knowledge should work. The insidious thing about pride is that those that are proud often can't see the pride in them. You know that's true. You point out the pride in something that, I don't think that's true about me. That's true about them. It's one of the beauties of preaching. Is that every Sunday we get up and say something that we say, boy, I wish they knew what I knew. There's pride in the preaching too. The Bible says that pride runs deep in the human heart. Whether you're part of the liberal elite or the common man conservative, you can almost picture them sitting out there. Yeah, it's those elite. They don't have anything right. They went to Harvard and Yale, Princeton. Then the other end, if they just went to my school, then they would know. You see, there's a pride that goes both ways. It's also true whether you take pride in where you went to college or in the fact that you didn't go to college at all. Whether you're a Mets fan or a Yankees fan, and you hear that all the time on the subway. Whether you live on the east side or the west side is the best side. (laughs) Whether you've got a nice car or you are proud of the fact that you don't even have a driver's license. Whether you're a simple man or you like to use big words to let people know just how smart you are. Whether you're a Presbyterian or you're one of those Jesus and me only people and you're not part of anything. Whether your shoes are hokas or I wore for you today my new on clouds. Because they are the best. (laughs) The point here is that we humans have an amazing capacity for pride. So what's the antidote, Bruce? I need help here. Not a lecture. The antidote's in verse 3. But whoever loves God is known by God. If anyone knows God, it is because he is known by God. Only grace dissolves pride in the human heart. 
It is the only antidote. Only the true knowledge that God loves you more and best and first can delude and dissolve the pride that you have, that I have. There's a beautiful moment in the funeral procession of a Habsburg emperor in Austria. Here's your one little history lesson. It's free. When Franz Joseph died, his body was brought before the abbey there in Vienna. And the abbey, the abbot would ask, who are you? And one of the leading the procession of the dead king would answer, I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, Bohemia, Galatia, Domitia, duke of Transylvania, Margrave of Morovia, duke of Syria, and Corinthia. And the abbot would then say, I don't know you. You can't come. The exchange would be repeated a couple of times. And then the one leading the procession would get on his knees and say, I am Franz Joseph, poor sinner, begging for the mercy of God. And then the abbot would open the gates and he would say, enter and find your rest. There's no door to heaven through pride. Not one. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. This is the testimony of those who possess true knowledge. And it is the antidote to our pride. But what about bad theology? We pick that up all the time. Paul says in verse 4, So then about eating food sacrificed idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Again, the Corinthians are expecting Paul to agree. They didn't see why they could eat, why they could not eat the meat that had been sacrificed in the temple or even a good reason why they couldn't attend so they could keep their union cards. Because an idol, they say, is nothing. It's just stone and wood. And they don't worship a real God in there. So what difference does it make? But to their surprise, Paul says, if your theology takes you back into those temples, then it's bad theology. Why? Because God does not exist for us. We exist for God. It's one of the ways you know where your theology is. Is it centered around you and God serving you? Or does it centered around God and you serving God? That's the difference. When God sets us free, He doesn't set us free to do what we want, when we want, however we want. God sets us free so that our desires can be shifted away from us to him. This is verse 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. God does not want his people playing around with idols. Why? Because God has watched idols steal the hearts of his people and destroy their lives. 
So playing with those things get us burnt. I remember when I was little, I had to learn this lesson the hard way. My mom had turned off the oven, and I thought it was still safe because the oven was off, and I put my hand on the electric burner and burnt my hand. Many of us play with idols like that, and we carry the scars of the circles of those electric elements on our hearts. So what's behind all that idolatry? One grand infernal creature, Satan, who the scriptures say, seek to whom he may devour. So don't play with fire. Chapter 10, uh, Michael will get to this hopefully next week. In 20 and 21, I don't want to steal his thunder, but I'm just quoting the verses. Know what pagan sacrifice they offer goes to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. He just sets that up so beautifully. Don't you see? Bad theology is the worst taskmaster of all. Bad theology does not lead to freedom, but to more slavery. And there's great implications of this in the 21st century. How do Christians live in a secular culture, which is the culture in which we live? We have a few temples, but most people don't go. I'm not tempted to go into the temples. You're not tempted typically to go into those temples, and we need to be aware of them. But most of us, That's not a problem. We're far more tempted by the culture's idols that aren't in the temples themselves. What's the cultural idols? The idols of materialism and consumerism that is so rampant in the American culture. It's the idol of stuff. And if you think your theology has freed you to buy whatever you want whenever you want, then you have bad theology. You're being enslaved by that theology. The theology will swallow your soul. And what's worse, you won't even notice it's happening. People outside our culture can see it so much easier than people inside the culture. Just how consumerism is part of our culture. It's a siren's call. We see it on the Facebook pages and pages of the internet that learn our patterns of things we want to buy. And they're always in front of us. There are too many discussions about who is cool and what is cool. Hence the sneakers. What's the antidote to bad theology? Oh, this is so easy. Good theology. We were not freed for ourselves, but for him. I apologize if the church has told you that be a Christian... Because it finally frees you. There is truth in that. But there's bad theology in that. The good theology is you have been freed. But you haven't been freed for yourself. But for him. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And to prove that the sacrifice worked, he's alive. Paul is saying here, I don't want you sucked right back into the hole that God has delivered you out of. You're a new creation, Paul will say in a different letter. 
The old has passed away. The new has come. That's very different than God has freed you to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. The last one, fallenness of the human heart. We need to be aware just how fallen our heart is. If, you, if your highest priority is the exercise of your freedom, then you don't see how fallen your heart is. The highest priority should be the well-being of your brother and sister, quite frankly. The crux of the issue here is not whether you can eat meat or not. That's not the issue. But the well-being of your brothers and sisters. The crux of the issue isn't uh, whether you can attend a worship service uh, that is not Christian, but the well-being of your brother and sister. Listen to Paul. This is verse 9. Be careful. However, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so their weak brother or sister for whom Christ has died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their conscience, their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Do you hear what he's saying in his argument here? Is that you do have freedom. That it really isn't worshiping a true God. It really is okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But if you believe that, but the weak Christian does not, and you do it in front of them as a way to somehow sh- show that you have superior knowledge or superior freedom, and you destroy their conscience because they think it's okay to do, but their conscience bears testimony that it is not okay, you're destroying them. The problem here isn't you can't offend your fellow Christians. You can. We often do. The issue here is destroying them. Destroying them by something that they think is right to, wrong to do, and you have the freedom, but you do it right in front of them. Are you willing to sacrifice the well-being of your brothers so that you can exercise your freedom? You don't have the freedom to destroy a brother or sister. Food is not the issue here. The, free, the freedom is not the issue. Your love for your brother and sister are. How will God ever get the self-centeredness out of our hearts? The truth is there's only been one human being, one person, one being who's ever lived on this planet who put a brother or sister first without any mixed motives, without any ulterior motives, only one. Jesus left heaven to put you first. He saw what was destroying you and put you first. He's the only one who absolutely put us first. Well, let me just as a side, that's not an example for us to follow because it's crushing. If the standard is that we love the way Jesus loved, and that that's how we're going to be measured for having a right relationship with God. We've given into the culture's narrative that what you do determines your relationship with the Lord, positive or negative. I'm not saying Jesus isn't a great example. He's a great example. If you've got to follow some example, that's the one. But if you're doing it because that's what God requires of you, it's life-crushing. Because nobody loves the way Jesus loved. 
But when Jesus put us first, he covered us, including when we offend and hurt and damage our brothers and sisters. You realize that? He knew full well that we were going to hurt one another. And he died anyway. He knew full well the depth of the sins that we would sink to in life. And he said, you know what? I'm going to put them first. He could have said, I'm here. Raise your standard, guys. Then when you meet my standard, I'll die for you. But he said, look, I see it. I was in the beginning, I'm in the middle, and I am the end, and I know it all, and I did it anyway because I love you. I love you. So not only does it cover us when we fail, but it also empowers us to live differently. That very same thing is no longer a standard, but an empowerment. That when I've got a choice between my will or what's good for you, I'm going to pick what's good for you first. Because he did that for me. Not because it's the standard by which I live, it's because he did it for me. That's why Paul will say in verse 13, this is the end. It's an amazing statement. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. You hear what he's saying? He says, guys, I like meat. I like it rare. I like it bleeding. I like it with a good baked potato. But if it's what causes my brothers and sisters to stumble because the context is that had been sacrificed to a false god, then I will give up all meat, not just meat that was sacrificed. Why? Because his, his goal is to live, to put others first, brothers and sisters, The gospel is at work in our hearts when we put each other first. When we don't demand others fulfill our expectations. But when we live in light of what Christ has done for us. The antidote to the fallen heart is the gospel. Which empowers us to live so differently as a community. And so the only question that I leave you with is, will you drink that medicine? When I was little, they didn't flavor the medicine the way they do today. My kids loved medicine when they were little because they put so much flavor in it. Give me another swig of that. When I was little, there was lots of people who said, you know what? We're going to give him some castor oil. And give him a second one. (laughs) Which was horrible. Medicine tasted horrible. And sometimes to live where you're putting other people first. Tastes bad. Because our hearts want to live for ourselves first. It takes a long time to acquire that taste. Just like it does for true medicine. So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you so much. That Jesus saw us, that we weren't living for ourselves, we were living, I mean, we were living for ourselves, not for others. We were 
not living for you. We were not even seeking after you. In fact, we were probably seeking after many gods, many cultural narratives. We're all in our heart ruling. And you sent Jesus down here to live that life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, to rise again to prove that it was an acceptable sacrifice that our sins are forgiven so that we might live a new life in you, whereby we are concerned about how others are served, particularly those in the greatest need in our body, in our city, in our world. Even today, as bombs are dropping in the Middle East, we lift them up and we cry out, please stop. May there be peace. We know ultimately peace only comes through Christ and that peace can only come in it ultimately in his return. So Jesus, come. Come quickly. Even if it means we never graduate from college, even if it means we never get the job that we've been working so diligently to get, even if it means we never buy the car or the on-cloud shoes that we so desperately want, may you come quickly and bring peace. And until that moment in time, may we live differently so that people on the streets, people in the church will ask us what's the difference and we can tell them Jesus. Father, we pray that in your son's name who makes this all possible and that we might go on and worship and go deeply with praise and thanksgiving because you did that for us. You put us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.